Exodus 9, beginning in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, excuse me, now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and every beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Good morning, beloved. The title of this morning's message is The Awe of God in Both Judgment and Mercy. As a reminder, the overarching message of the Exodus is that God delivers his people to himself for himself. He delivers a people to himself by himself for himself. And while God saves his people, we're also reminded that he smites his enemies. So how is it then that we should evaluate God's judgment? That's the question. And the fact, beloved, that he does not smile upon every image bearer the same. He does not equally look down upon the earth and just smile upon everyone. That is an unbiblical view of the one true God. Now, we we mustn't forget the original audience of the Exodus. That, of course, was the children of Israel, who would have heard this account told and retold over the course of 40 years in the wilderness and beyond. This account of deliverance. Now you can imagine them sitting around the campfires in the wilderness, hearing stories told about 400 years of Egyptian oppression. How they were brought out and delivered by the hand of God. And how Pharaoh, 
by way of the fertile imaginations of men, was actually considered a god. And as we said a few messages ago, when we were laying out some of the history of Egypt, uh, Pharaoh wore a headdress with the emblem of a cobra ready to strike. You seen the pictures? Well, the children of Israel would have been reminded that the one who wore a headdress with a cobra ready to strike has been struck. And here we see that he's being struck by the one true God. For there is but one God. And he will be worshipped as such. Now, that's the original context, and that is so that these signs, these signs of God, be told in the hearing of Israel's sons and grandsons. That is, within the generations of Israel. If you look there at chapter 10 and verse 2, to tell them how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know. That who may know? You, my people, may know that I am the Lord. Psalm 78, 6, we read it, so that the next generation might know them. I read, it, I read from it this morning. The children yet unborn, that they'll arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. We are a forgetful people. Are we not? We must be reminded of these things, not unlike Israel. Even though we have the Spirit of God, we must be reminded of these things. We're inundated with information day after day after day, and we must wash our minds continually with the remembrance of who God is and what it is He has done. So, as God's people, that is precisely what we are to do this day with our children. And that is to ignite within them a life-shaping awe of God, And for God. Again, a life shaping awe of God and for God. That's 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 what we do. That's the purpose of this ministry, beloved. This isn't a ministry just to have programs to have programs. How much stuff can we do? Amen? Amen. Every facet of ministry is geared to help us, to help us help one another see God's glory and name it as the thing for which we live. This is why we live. This is why we dwell. That's why Ray and Peggy are in Africa, if you weren't here for the update. And this here, the Exodus account, is just one part of God's grand redemptive story, moving towards and ultimately fulfilled in Christ, upon whom, might I remind you, the wrath of God was poured out, striking his son in our place with the ultimate stroke of judgment. Talk about being struck. He was struck in our place, only in the place of those who believe. Now, God's strokes of judgment in this account upon Pharaoh and Egypt come in waves of three. Three sets of three plagues. Nine strokes of God's judgment that precede the tenth and final judgment, which is the stroke of death upon the firstborn of all those throughout Egypt. 
Now, as the plagues move along, I think we've noticed thus far how the strokes of God's judgment increase with intensity as they move along. We've seen this, have we not? The judgment of hail, fire, and thunder is the first of the final wave of plagues. It's the first of the last set of three that is before us this morning. Now, it's important that we also remember that Uh, these aren't merely about the judgment of God. These sign judgments aren't merely about his judgment. They are also about his patience and his mercy. After all, could he not wipe them out just by speaking? He could turn them to dust. He could crush them. But we see his mercy. God's mercy tempers the judgment that we witness in these accounts. Again, God's mercy tempers the judgments we see in the plague accounts. Yes, we see his outstretched hand of judgment, no doubt, but not without opportunity to turn to him and repent. We saw last time for the first time in the plague narratives that God actually hardens Pharaoh's heart. God hardens his heart. In the first five sign judgments, we're told either that Pharaoh's heart is hardened or he hardened his heart. In in verse 12, the sixth sign judgment, we're told that the Lord hardened his heart just as the Lord told Moses he would do. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That's what's called divine reprobation, beloved. And let me tell you this, divine reprobation is the sorest, the most stinging and severest of judgments this side of hell. A frightening thing, what, to be turned over to your rebellion against God? To be solidified, to to, to be calcified, to be hardened in your wicked ways against God? And may we all be reminded this morning, beloved, Except for God's grace, we would all be in that condition this morning. Some of you may be in that condition this morning. Some of you may be hardened against God, and I pray to God that he hardens you not in that hardness. If that's you, listen. Listen closely. See, beloved, this is why we as Christians... The fact that God is judgmental and merciful... This is why we stand in awe of not merely his mercy, but also his judgment. As believers, we stand in awe of his mercy. We stand in awe of his judgment. And and that is that both grief over our sin, both the grief over our sin and the celebration of God's mercy is what continually drives us to Christ. Amen? Are you not driven to Christ? Are you not impelled to Christ not only because of your sin that still exists, but also because of his mercy in spite of your sin that still exists. That's the tension we live with as believers, redeemed. So we're driven to the cross. And we stand in awe of all that he is. He's just and merciful. He's hateful and loving. He hates sin, make no doubt about it. So it's, it's the awareness of our sin and the promise of our sal- salvation that impels us towards our glorious Savior. So as we look at this, what, what exactly 
is God doing here with these sign judgments? I mean, why does God choose to draw out and extend these judgments for so long when he could just wipe these people out? What are we to make of Pharaoh's resistance and his hardness? Well, lest we lose sight of it all, beloved. The short answer is this. God is and always has been in absolute control. Amen? Lest we become dismayed at man's rebellion, resistance, and stubbornness as we watch the evening news night in and night out, God is in control. A couple more amens. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Lest we mistakenly think that God's kingdom can't be possibly advancing, after all, look at what's going on in Africa. After all, look at what's going on in the United States government. He can't, abs- he can't possibly be con- extending his kingdom. <clears throat> Wrong. He is absolutely sovereign. He is truly sovereign, and his plans will not be thwarted. Were they thwarted here in the Exodus account? No. If you're living in the midst of it, perhaps for 400 years, as an Israelite, you perhaps would have thought that here and again, lying depressed upon your bed night in and night out. But God was working according to his plan. So we're shown here in just yet another snapshot that God's sovereign power is not only declared, but it's also displayed. He declares it, and then he displays it. And in your outline, you'll see it's broken up to you, for you in three parts. Verses 13 to 17, <clears throat> we see the Lord's invincible purpose, which is announced. Verses 18 to 21, the Lord's merciful forewarning is given. And then in verses 22 to 35, we see the Lord's inevitable judgment unleashed. And also another false repentance from Pharaoh. Repentance that needs to be repented of. Notice first, the Lord announces his invincible purposes. Verse 13 and 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning to present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there's none like me in all the earth. Notice the command is the same, beloved. It's the same command, is it not? Let my people go. Now it's early morning. And this is what we see in the first set In in the first plague of all three sets, we see Pharaoh being met in the morning. And we read in the other accounts that Pharaoh typically was at the river, at the Nile in the morning, which historically we read that that's where the priests would go who worshipped the Nile, the priests of Egypt that is, and wash their little idols in the waters of the Nile. And perhaps he he had some regimen that that he, he did or acted out Morning after morning. He says, go down and meet him in the morning. And notice, God does not say, you know, Moses, things don't seem to be working with Pharaoh. I can't seem to get through his thick skull. So let's change the message. Does he do that? 
No, he does not. Rise up, go, and proclaim my word once again. No editing necessary. Preach it. Let my people go that they may serve me, that they may worship me. Isaiah 55, 11, we're reminded that my word, God's word, that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And let me remind you, beloved, his purpose may be to harden the hearer. That doesn't mean everyone who hears it is going to believe. Some will believe. Some will be hardened in their unbelief as they hear it. So notice to the same individual, he, is, he who is all along hardened his heart. And, and let's not forget, it's doubly hard. A doubly hard heart. He's hardened it. It's hard. And then God hardened it. But the, the message doesn't change, does it? One commentator writes, and I quote, Though grace had been suspended, the obligation still remains, end quote. God removes his grace, the obligation to the sinner is unchanging. Boys and girls, the obligation for you, for you, every little boy, every little girl, every man, every woman, is to obey the command of God, and that is to repent and believe on me, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe on the Lord, and ye shall be saved. But yet, in and of ourselves, we have not the ability, we do not have the capacity to do so unless the Spirit of God gives us the ability to do so. And although man is incapable of upholding God's law, the obligation remains the same. Well, some say, well, that seems so unreasonable. Is it unreasonable? Some people think it is. Some Christians believe that it's unreasonable. You mean I cannot believe and yet God says the obligation is that I do? Well, think about it this way. When Adam sinned, did God change? No, of course not. When Adam fell, did his law in nature change? Absolutely not. Did he adapt his law and his nature and his character to the fallen condition of Adam? No. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the obligation to Adam remained. The problem was he couldn't do it. He needed a redeemer. And that's the point here. Moses goes to Pharaoh, a man who will not let his people go, and he says, let my people go. He's obligated to his creator. As an image bearer of God, who is a rebel of God. Such is the message, beloved, of our God to this day. Repent and believe, trust and obey. The obligation, it is impossible unless God himself breathes life-giving ability into the sinner. And we dare not change that message, amen? To make it less confrontational and more palatable. Many so-called preachers do that today. Less confrontational, more palatable. So that we don't have people scowling at us. Repent, 
and believe, trust and obey, and you shall be saved. An unchanging eternal message from Almighty God. Notice in verse 14 what he says. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people so that you may know, get this, that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. This is a a land filled with false deities, a land filled with man-made gods, and Pharaoh was one of them. And you'll know I am the one true God. Literally, verse 14 reads like this. I am, about, I am about ready to send all my signs to your heart. The full force of my plagues will be set upon your heart. This is just judgment. God is saying this. The reason I am dealing with you as I am is to deal with your heart, Pharaoh. I deal with men's hearts. Some of them I replace. I take that heart of stone out. And I replace it, replace it with the heart of flesh. Some hearts, I solidify in that hardness. And I'm the sovereign, and you're not. That's what he's saying. Verses 15 to 17. We see, we see God's word is invincible. It's inflexible. It's unshakable in its purposes. For by now, I could have put, notice this, I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you've been cut off from the earth. But... Notice this, for this purpose I've raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. We're still talking about it today, aren't we? That his name will be proclaimed in all the earth by what he does with this Pharaoh. We're talking about it today. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. My purpose, Pharaoh, is what God is saying, is all along, it's been to use you. That's right, to use you, to utilize your rebellion, your resistance, your stubbornness, and your hardness, that I might show my glories by way of my power in delivering my people out from among you. I'm using you for my glory. That's what he's saying. His heart is being smitten as God makes a distinction. That is a redemption between his people and Egypt. That's what he's done with you, beloved. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're his redeemed people. He's made a distinction. Yes, God makes distinctions, does he not? Those those he pursues to save, he will save. He breaks. He molds and he makes them, recreates them into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Praise God, amen. Amen. Praise God that he does. In verse 15, the Lord says there, you know, I could have wiped each and every one of you out. I could have turned you over and turned you into ash, just like I did to Sodom and Gomorrah. He turned them to ash. That place is a desolate salt land today. And then verse 16, of course, is is the key in the entire narrative with with Pharaoh is is here a living monument to the the power and authority of Almighty God. He's a living monument, a testimony. And this, of course, if you're familiar with your Bible, is picked up on by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9. If you would, turn to Romans 9. 
favorite passage of so many Christians in our day. (laughs) If it's not, it soon will be yours. Romans 9, beginning in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Is God obligated to have compassion on everyone equally? Is God obligated to smile upon everyone equally? No, he's not. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Man doesn't have enough willful desire in him to come to God. So it it, it depends not on human will. It depends not on exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and that's this Pharaoh, verse 17, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Sound familiar? So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. Well, now you stand up and you say, well, that's not fair. Well, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Great answer, Paul. Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? As I said a few weeks ago, if he wants to make a smelly ashtray, he'll make a smelly ashtray. If he wants to make a vase to hold flowers, he'll make a vase to hold flowers. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, verse 22, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Many people don't like that passage. And when I say many people, I I say many Christians don't like it because it it makes us utterly helpless and entirely dependent upon the will of God, does it not? Pharaoh will stand as a living testimony of God's sovereignty in making known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy as he uses Pharaoh as a vessel of wrath. That's what this is all about. Now, many American evangelicals, you know, steeped in ignorance, who lack a proper biblical worldview of life, will often look at plagues around the world. They'll watch the news, and they'll say, why would God do this? Why would he allow this? If God is love, how could such a thing happen? If God is love, how can such things be going on around the world? That's because they don't believe that all men deserve God's judgment. They don't believe that all men are truly wicked to the core. They don't believe it. And then some are so bold as to look at texts like this, and they'll actually read what I just read and say, Oh no, not my God. Not the God I serve. My God is a God of love. Is God a God of love? Yeah, but that's not all he is. He is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace. He's also a God of wrath. Exodus 15.3, we read that the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. You see, that's what it is to have peace with God, beloved. As a Christian, you're no longer at enmity with God. You're no longer at war with God. 
Peace has been made through Jesus Christ. The enmity's been removed because he absorbed it. He absorbed the wrath of God. And as he absorbed it, he absolved it for those who are in Christ, but only for those who are in Christ. That's what salvation is. May we never lift our little proud chins in resistance to the truth of God and say, oh no, not my Lord. Think again. God is love, yes, but that's not all he is. God is loving, he's merciful, but he's also just and wrathful all at the same time. All of which, beloved, serve to magnify his glory. That's why we stand in the awe of his glory. Now, I I read a good illustration of that truth this week. We're talking about God's love. If God loved everyone the same, how could you ever possibly as a Christian come to know and understand the depth of his love for you? Think about it like this. Great illustration. A young man walks into a room and he's captivated by this young, beautiful woman, as I was 27 years ago in my life. You walk into a room and you're captivated by this beautiful woman. Her eyes met his. She smiles. He nervously smiles back. He begins to talk with her. She's looking intently at him. She bats her eyes. She flicks her hair. Everything he says, she nods in smiling agreement. They talk for 15 or 20 minutes. He nervously gets out his cell phone, goes into the back room and calls his mommy. Mommy, I think I found the one. She's beautiful. She's gorgeous. And I think she loves me. And as he's talking, another young man walks into the room. Their eyes meet. She smiles at him. He smiles at her. She bats her eyes. She flicks her hair. Everything he he says, she nods in agreement. (laughs) He gets his phone out and he calls his mother. A third young man walks in, mesmerized by her beauty. She bats her eyes. She flicks her hair. She smiles in agreement with everything that he says. If that's all she is, and that's all she does with everyone she meets, it doesn't mean anything when she does it with you. (laughs) Great illustration. If God is merely a sappy, sentimental lover to everyone, it means nothing when he shows that love to you. Nothing when he shows that love for you in Christ, his son, who was crucified for those that are his and only those that are his. Make no mistake about it. You can only understand his love when you rightly understand that he is righteous and he is wrathful. Then you can understand the cross, without which you'll never understand the cross and the love shown there, ever. It's impossible. So taking into account these verses, how are we to think about God? Perhaps some of us need to rethink how we think about God. How shall we know what God is like? Uh, By what means can we or do we know this mighty God? And you know what? When those kinds of questions arise, one response ought to come to your mind. And it's this. 
human opinion counts for nothing. Nothing. I don't care what you think about how God should be, and you should not care what I think about how God should be, unless how God is comes from his word. Otherwise, it's meaningless what you think. Does this seem like some rough message this morning? Does it? It's not really. This is the text, and it magnifies the reality of the foolish thinking of man with regard to this God, the same God. Especially when it comes from Christians, who profess to be Christian anyway. Human opinion counts for nothing in defining God. So how then shall we as his creatures know him? Well, we will know him by his own initiative to reveal himself to us. That's it. That is it. It's the only way you'll know God. Is with, when he, by way of divine revelation, special revelation, reveals himself to the sinner. And then you can only fall to your knees in thanksgiving. That he's revealed himself in such a way. Or you stand as Pharaoh. Hard. With your hands on your hips. With your teeth gritted. I say God's like this. You're a fool. Repent. And believe. And you too, if God sees fit, will save you. If he provides the faith and the repentance to do so. Amen? Amen. Verse 17. Even so... You are still exalting yourself against my people, and you will not let them go. Pharaoh, you're still doing it. Look, Pharaoh, he is sinning. Pharaoh should, resp- should repent. Is God's will being thwarted here? No. No, absolutely not. Pharaoh is under God and under his will. What did Luther say about the devil? The devil is God's devil. This Pharaoh is God's Pharaoh. If you're in rebellion against God today, you're his whether you realize it or not. And his will will not be thwarted at all. Not his sovereign will. And when God begins his judgments, no one can overcome them. It is impossible to escape. They're irreversible. They are invincible. So as we see here, God's invincible purpose his invincible power, we also see this, his interwoven mercies. You see this? Notice verse 18 to 21. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into a safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. There's brilliance on display for you right there. Human brilliance. Rebellious human brilliance. So, you see, with these strokes of judgment come tokens of mercy, interwoven. That's what we see here. This is an opportunity to turn to the one true God. This is amazing. You know, God does everything with a reason, with purpose. 
for the sake of his own end? Do we realize this? Everything. Look, friends, we might get frustrated when we watch the news, right? When we see the name of Christ being just taken through the mud, does that upset you? As a Christian, of course it does. It upsets me. But we can at the same time, we can sit back in rest and say, God's plan is not being thwarted, not whatsoever. Not his sovereign plan. People resist his commanded will, yes. But his sovereign will is being worked out perfectly. And sometimes that means the judgment upon nations. Perhaps that what we're seeing in our own nation. The judgmental hand of God. The plague of indifference. The plague of rebellion. The plague of lethargy towards this God. Notice here he pinpoints the time, providing adequate knowledge of when and where his judgments will fall. Is that a merciful act or not? Yes, that's a merciful forewarning. Verse 18, behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Egypt became a nation in 3100 B.C. Okay, so, which means that for like 1,700 years at this point in time, there had never been a storm like this. That's pretty impressive. (laughs) Now, we know that there's a coming judgment before us, amen? There's a coming judgment before us, and that is the coming judgment of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And although, as 2 Peter tells us, scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing, following their own sinful desires, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Do you see this today? Do you hear this today? The very fact that we're still in this day, and that day hasn't arrived, is a day of opportunity. It's a day of opportunity before the hail falls, if you will. This is hail fire preaching this morning. Hail fire. The southern, that's no southern accent. Hail. Fire. I heard Ray talking about southern hillbilly worship music this morning. Something, I don't know what you were saying, but it was funny what I caught. Maybe we never do hillbilly worship music. Amen? <laughs> Perhaps you sit here this morning in hard-hearted unbelief, embracing an anti-Christian worldview, embracing an anti-Christ attitude. Well, perhaps you, as Romans 2 says, are presuming upon the riches of his kindness, the riches of God's kindness and his forbearance and his patience. That's what we see in Exodus, God's merciful patience. And that you, you do not know, Romans 2, 4, not knowing that God's kindness, and not just devouring you right now, is meant to lead you to repentance. Romans 2, verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself right now on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It will be revealed. It will come. So this is God's kindness in warning. That's mercy, beloved. Amen? Long-suffering, not giving sinners what they do deserve immediately. So the Lord suffers long. And you know what he provides in that? You know that this preaching, all true preachers, is a means of grace 
It's a means of grace. This forewarning for unbelievers is a means of grace to run to the shelter of his wrath, from his wrath, I should say. And that shelter is Jesus Christ. God provides a shelter here. Jesus is the shelter. So here again, God's God's wrath reveals his mercy, providing safe shelter. Verse 19. Get him out of the field. Get him under cover. Jesus is the only cover for the wrath of God, the ultimate wrath of God. You know, it's never as bad as it could be. That is God's judgment. It's never as bad as it could be, ever. 9-11, I believe without doubt, was a judgment of God. Not as bad as it could have been. Not as bad. But so many innocent people died. Nobody's innocent. And you're going to die of either your last disease or your last accident. You're going to die. You just don't know when. Are you under the shelter of Christ? That's the question. That's the question. This is the seventh plague, friends. This is the seventh sign judgment, meaning that God has restrained himself six other times. He hasn't merely wiped them off the face of the earth. Did you hear Bobby preach last week? Psalm 103, verse 10. God does not give us what our sins, what? Deserve. Psalm 145, 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. He's not like me who could just fly off the handle sometimes like an idiot. (laughs) Anybody else like that? Or are you all perfect? (laughs) If we all were, then the pulpit would be empty and the seats would be empty. Right, Ed? That's right. Nobody would be here. We're recipients of grace. So even in the final plague, we'll see the mercy of God. It's only the the firstborn of all the households of Egypt that die and livestock. So all who do not follow Christ, as long as you're drawing breath in your body, that's a time of mercy, friends. That's a time of grace to receive this loving Lord who is just. You know, he, he even shows mercy, God does, to the blatantly, those who are blatantly opposed to him, like so-called atheists. And by the way, there's no such thing as a true atheist. There's no such thing as a true atheist. Everyone believes in God. They just hate him. And the ones that are more vocal about it just hate him all the more. And even in his mercy, as one commentator has said, the, the fact that the so-called atheist gets to write his book, publish it, and profit from it is evidence of the mercy of God, end quote. Word is right, Richard Dawkins. He's under the mercy of God, even though he's under condemnation because he's an unbeliever, he still is a recipient of his mercy and that God just does not wipe him out when he writes his next word. That's mercy. That's a time to repent. God does not deal with us as our sins deserve for the believer and the unbeliever. All my sins have been paid for in Christ. You're in Christ, all your sins have been paid for, past, present, future. All that we can expect from him is his chastening hand because he chastens those he loves. Now, in verses 20 and 21, we see the juxtaposed reality of what one does with the forewarning of God. Notice. Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But, 
Whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. What happened to them? They all died. They were wiped out. You know, that reality is shown to us so clearly in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28 and verse 24. Right? When we read about that, that's after a monumental time in church history. We're seeing the Spirit of God move in dramatic ways, saving sinners, Gentiles from throughout the world. Paul's out preaching and teaching. And as he preached and as he taught, we're told that he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Verse 24, Acts 28. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Friends, not everyone's going to heaven. We know this, do we not? Not everyone's going to heaven. But God does have a people who will believe. No one can believe without the grace of God by the regenerating work of the Spirit. So this account here, I don't care what time in history you've lived, whether it was the time of Egypt, first century Rome, during the time of the Reformation, or here in America. Some believe, some do not. Some fall at the mercy of God, some shake their fist at God. It will always be this way. So, it's not only in in the Exodus. It happens to this very day. So in verses 22 to 26, we see the Lord's inevitable judgment unleashed, just as he said it would come, It came. And there hadn't been a storm like this in two millennia. Can you imagine this? I I, I can't imagine. Unbelievable. Such destruction. He declared it. He displayed it. All fulfilled. So here in the midst of this severe, frightening judgment, we see more false repentance. Notice verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I've sinned. You know, not before, but this time. Okay? The Lord is right. And I and my people were in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, Moses, for there's been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Now, in verse 27, we see some sense of conviction here. That, we know, is worldly repentance. That's not godly sorrow that leads to true repentance. That's what's referred to as worldly sorrow. Verse 28, literally, he says this, Entreat the Lord that there be no more sons of God. Entreat the Lord that there be no more sounds of God. Imagine that. Pray for me, and I'll let you go. We've heard this before, have we not? I'll let you go. You know, Pharaoh here, beloved, believe it or not, he is at the point of full bona fide faith. In other words, he believes Yahweh will do exactly what Yahweh said he will do. Is that true belief? No. What does James tell us? There's a great danger, friends, a great danger in mere said belief. There's a great danger in mere intellectual assent to the things of God. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Great. Good. But even the demons believe, and what do they do? They shudder. They shudder. 
You know, demons don't have this skeptical, cynical, dubious kind of unbelief. They believe. The belief in the theology of demons is spot on. And it even exceeds ours in certain measures. After all, they've been around since creation. And they, they, they dwell in the spiritual realm. Okay? But they do believe with 100% accuracy that everything God says he will do, he does, and he follows through. They believe it. They've seen it time and time again. But they believe with hardened hearts as rebels against God. Oh, I believe the facts of Jesus. But they're not true believers. Many people in our land believe like that. They believe 100%, but with hardened, rebellious hearts. So again, there is no true atheist. They believe God. They just resist him in their rebellion. They suppress his truth in their unrighteousness. You know, a lot of the imagery that we've seen here in the Exodus, we see show up again in what book? Thank you, the book of Revelation. Check this out. Revelation 16 is taken from this Exodus narrative. You see lightnings and thunders and sounds and hail. Revelation 16, 18. This is referring to the final wrath of God, the ultimate final wrath of God. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. Okay, now what do you suppose they will do? Bow and repent before God? Right? Lord, I was wrong. Have mercy upon me. I believe. No. They curse God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. They curse him. They curse him. They die as they live, cursing the name of God. And then they're cast into hell to do that forever. And they only continue continue to sin. Revelation 16.5 says he comes like a thief to judge the living and the dead. So evidently there, the time of repentance has passed. The interwoven mercies of God have ceased. The day of evangelism is over. Frightening picture. Comes from the Exodus. Amazing. But still, even here at this moment, back in the Exodus, God still shows mercy. He provides time to repent. To the world, I say, there's time to repent. To the world, I say, there's time to bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ because there's coming a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you'll either do it gloriously and joyfully or you will do it with gritted teeth for eternity. One or the other. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and say, but I'm a Christian. Then rejoice. Don't trip out on a hard message like this. Rejoice, you're saved. <laughs> Don't get bowed up on me. This is the word of God. We're talking about his judgment. We're talking about his wrath, his love, and his mercy shown to us in and through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. The whole counsel of God. Amen. So you can really rejoice this afternoon. That you're delivered from this wrath. If you're not in Christ, you're condemned already. But it's not a hopeless situation because you're still drawing breath. So you can repent and believe if he grants you the grace to do so. So God shows mercy. Notice in verses 31 to 32, he mentions four crops that, that were vital to the economic resources of Egypt. Okay, And he shows us here again 
Another facet of God's mercy. He spares two of the four kinds of crops. Providing again time to repent. Even though God knows, of course God knows, but Moses knows that this mercy will not bring about a response of faith, true repentant faith. He's seen this over and over. Basically, what Moses says here is that God's in charge of the world. And the reason I'm going to pray for you, yes, I'll pray for you as you have requested, but I'm going to pray, not because I believe what you just said, that you're going to let God's people go, but because I want you to know the world belongs to God. You, Pharaoh, are not God. And Egypt also had a God of the world known as uh, the God uh, Jeb. He's not God either. The Lord, he is God. And the nations will know, the world will know that the world belongs to God. And Pharaoh, you've been raised for this purpose. And that is for God's name to be proclaimed in all the what? In all the earth. You know, as we go on and read, others, other nations heard about these judgments. In Exodus 15, 14, it says the peoples have heard, and you know what they do? They tremble. See, the problem is today that not enough people tremble. Not enough unbelievers have enough sense to tremble. Later in Joshua 9, 9, we read that from a, from a very distant country, your servants have come to you, Israel, because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. Much later in 1 Samuel 4, 8, woe to us, I think this was the Philistines, woe to us, who can stand before the one who struck down the Egyptians? And today, again, we discuss the name of the Lord, our Redeemer, this God who sent these plagues upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and we're still standing in awe. All the world is known, amen? And the world continues to know. So in spite of all the hard-hearted resistance, God's plan, beloved, will be advanced. God's kingdom is being advanced. God's elect will be saved. Christ's name will be made known around the world. It's been going on for 2,000 years. The name of Jesus Christ, name above all names, King of kings, Lord of lords. So why the monotony? of Pharaoh's hard-hearted resistance. It's quite simple, beloved. Because such is the monotony of sin and rebellion and resistance against the one true God around the world. Such is the monotony of the fall of the first man, Adam. Only will anyone be saved by way of the, the work of the last Adam our Lord Jesus Christ. It's faith and trust in him alone. So, to close, in this account, what do we learn? Some get justice, some get mercy, but no one gets injustice. Some get justice, some get mercy, no one gets injustice, and such is the case to this very day. 
God's wrath reveals his glory, his justice, his power, his kindness, his mercy, and his intimate love for those he looks upon and calls to himself and covers under the shelter of his son, Jesus Christ. And he smiles upon you. So we learn he doesn't smile upon everyone equally, beloved. You know who he smiles upon? His glorious, radiant son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, anyone in the Son, he likewise smiles upon. So know this, Christian. The Lord is smiling upon you this morning. He couldn't be more happy with you because you're his by way of the work of his Son. And so he does smile upon you. He does love you intimately. And if he did bat his eyes, and if he did flip his hair, he would do it with meaning towards you. But he's holy. And he's righteous and he's just. So if you're not in the sun, he's not smiling. He does discriminate. So the invitation is this. Turn from trusting yourself. Turn from the self-glory of self. Turn from worshiping yourself. Turn from worshiping whatever it is you worship. Take all your little gods and burn them. Come to faith in Jesus Christ and you won't burn. It's faith and trust in this one true God. From Genesis to Revelation, there's no hope outside of him. My hope is that you will know him. And if you do know him, my hope is that you will understand he's truly smiling upon you because you're in the sun. Amen? That is something to be thankful about.